law and order. Welcome to the Texas Take, the number one political podcast in the great state. I'm Scott Braddock, and he's Jeremy Wallace. You can find me at quorumreport.com for all the insider knowledge you need to have about Texas politics. And Jeremy's work, of course, appears at houstonchronicle.com and in uh, the the Express News down in San Antonio. That's expressnews.com. Jeremy, what a week uh, and what a week to come. We have an historic trial in the Texas Senate, the impeachment proceedings against the attorney general. And we have all these lawsuits that have been playing out on so many fronts, uh, not just things that were passed by the legislature that certain people want to stop ahead of today, which is the effective date for a lot of these uh, bills that were signed into law by the governor a couple of months ago. Um, But we also have a lawsuit over the border and that floating barrier that we'll get to and all of that. We have the proceedings uh, against Ken Paxton, which aren't just in the Senate, They're also in a courtroom in Houston, where I'm reporting from today. Also, we have the report of a federal grand jury down in San Antonio. All this that, as you pointed out on social media, it sounds like Texas, in a big sense, in a big way, almost the entire state is caught up in an episode of Law and Order. Where should we start here? I think we have to go with Ken Paxton first. And I will say right off the bat that I understand that not only as journalists ourselves, but the audience, everybody's going to have a little bit of Paxton fatigue. In fact, Jeremy, you might have noticed, uh, even among some of, some of your readership, some of the people who follow you on social media, they may seem a little tired of this already. But guess what? We have at least another two to three weeks to go in the impeachment proceedings themselves, I'm, I'm here to tell you, it might last as long as a month with everything that the Texas House impeachment managers have to lay out. On Tuesday, we're going to see all of the witnesses uh, sworn in uh, in the Texas Senate. It's a witness list of about 100 people, including the alleged mistress, um, the former body man uh, for Paxton, who had said at one point, uh, Paxton had said that this guy was kind of like his son. Uh, And now he's going to be testifying in a way that I don't think that Paxton's going to appreciate. Um, I was on Amanpour and Company on PBS earlier this week. And here's part of what I told them about what we're going to hear in this trial. If you put all this in a movie... Um, you and, and watched it and, and you watched that, you would say, there's no way this could happen in real life, but this is Texas politics. There's an old saying in Texas, which is if you ain't indicted, you ain't invited. We've had, you know, people at the, at the top who have been in legal problems before legal hot water before. Um, there is the allegation that he had a mistress, uh, and the way that this, uh, played out, uh, according to Texas house impeachment managers, those are the prosecutors in the case. Um, turns out that it, it looked kind of like Mission Impossible. I mean, if we're going to keep with the movie theme, uh, you had the attorney general accused of using burner phones. And an Uber account using a fake name, which was Dave P, that he and this uh, contributor, Nate Paul, they, they shared this Uber account. The Uber account was used to do things like take Paxton to and from his mistress's apartment here in Austin. And of course, those are the allegations. And that just scrapes the surface, Jeremy. There's so much uh, to it. You could sit here on the show for the next hour and just read all of the allegations against Ken Paxton. If you boil it all down... It's as if he's accused of being a crime boss who runs the attorney general's office, that he's that he's always doing some favor, something that's corrupt uh, for one of his contributors in particular, this guy, Nate Paul. But there have been other allegations against him as well. Um, You talked to Senator John Cornyn about this, who, of course, is a former attorney general. That was his job before he was in the Senate. Can you set the scene for this? Uh, This was a a sort of a press gaggle uh, either before or after an event. Yeah, this was an event in Austin earlier this week. You know, we caught up with him. Obviously, we were talking about, you know, what he really wanted to talk about, which was a semiconductor industry and things like that. But mm-hmm. then, of course, we had to ask him as a former attorney general himself. Yeah. Uh, you know, we've only had four attorney generals in like the last 30 years, uh, just because of the way the term limits have kind of worked out. So, like, he definitely had some insight. We thought that he could add to this whole thing. Sure. And so uh, at least part of this, he was asked about whether if he was in the Texas Senate, if he was one of those senators, whether he would be one of those who would vote to remove Paxton. But in the end, it's not my job. And it's not your job. It's the job of the members of the, of the Texas Senate uh, to render their verdict. And, uh, we're all going to be watching with great interest. If you were a senator, would you convict? I haven't heard the evidence yet other than what's been published in the press. I am concerned. 
I think that was uh, Paul Weber at the Associated Press who asked that, uh, that follow-up question about his concerns. You know, hey, it, I think it's fair to ask if you were in the Senate today, how would your vote go? And, and this, uh, you know, this press gaggle was not the first time that Cornyn has voiced concerns about the conduct of Ken Paxton, at least the alleged conduct. Cornyn says that there's no way, you know, and this, of course, is you know, speaking as someone who was the Attorney General previously. He says there's no way that this isn't having some negative impact on the inner workings of that office and the things that they do there, Jeremy, and I think a lot of people don't understand, you know, the size and scope of the AG's office in Texas. I mean, they handle child support claims, it's consumer uh, protection and that sort of stuff. That's usually what the AG should be in the headlines for. And Cornyn says there's no way that all of this distraction isn't harming the work that they're supposed to be doing. Having been attorney general, it's a very important part of our government, law enforcement agency, consumer protection agency. And uh, anytime something like this happens, obviously it's a distraction. And the fact that the sitting attorney general has been, uh, been suspended uh, from performing that function means that the temporary occupant of that office is having to do the job. So uh, there's no question that, uh, that the effectiveness of the office has been impaired. You often hear from critics of Republicans, primarily Democrats, but also some independents who would say, look, Republicans have had no problem with the allegations against Paxton. He continues to get reelected, even though a lot of the allegations had been known previously, but not all of them. We've made that point before. But uh, look, I think the fact that you have John Cornyn speaking out in this way. Rick Perry speaking out in a similar way and defending the House impeachment managers, Carl Rove speaking out as well, one of the big Republican names in Texas. It really speaks to the fact, Jeremy, that not all Republicans are cool with Paxton at all, right? Yeah, and I think particularly those three, right? You know, it's like you know the more these guys speak out, at least to to at least not uh, defend. Ken Paxton, the more they give cover to people to kind of take this, you know, more straight up, you know, and, and like obviously there's like Paxton supporters who are, you know, just going to support him no matter what they hear, you know, in this trial. But, you know, you, you've heard it from both like Cornyn and Perry for sure about like, hey, hey, let's let's respect the process here. You know, I wrote a lot more about this in my newsletter earlier this week about how uh, it's that respect for the process and the respect for the Texas House Republicans who brought this stuff forward that both Cornyn and Perry kind of like paid tribute to, you know, they point out that, look, these guys are just doing their constitutional duty. In Perry's case, he said, these guys are heroes. We shouldn't be, we should be celebrating them, not vilifying them. Yet there are people on the far right who are like, oh, they're just going after Ken Paxton. They're Democrats, mm-hmm. they're liberals, they're hacks or whatever. It's like, but, you know, these guys are at least kind of bringing it back to kind of the center going, whoa, whoa, whoa. There is something here worth investigating. We're not saying he should be found guilty, but let's let the process run through. So you have some cooler heads kind of performing that role now. And like I think Cornyn just, you know, speaking out a little bit more on it. I didn't I thought he would just ignore the whole question, quite honestly. You know, when Paul Weber, you know, started asking the question, I'm like, oh, he's just he could just walk away from this, going, not my job. Don't I'm not gonna get into it. But he mm-hmm. did give us a little bit more support for what the Texas House at least has done and paid tribute to the Texas Senate to let this process go through. But like I, I kind of want to bring it one step forward. So so like mm-hmm. the thing about this like whole trial, it's like it's easy to get caught up in the day-to-day operations of, you know, what this means for Ken Paxson and his future and, you know, look at like what you were talking about, the attorney general's office, which does have some important functions. Like attorney general's offices are a kind of like – if you look at them nationwide, you know, including in Texas, they have been almost 100 percent of the time a launching pad for people in politics, right? Mm-hmm. You get into the attorney general's office and you go to the next office almost all the time. You know, in Texas, every attorney general since I was born, which is six, well, now seven with Ken Paxton, but the previous six, every single one of them ran for governor or for the U.S. Senate or both. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so th- that tells you this is a launch pad. And so as this trial is going on, Watch what's what's happened for Ken Paxton here is like he may be the first attorney general who isn't able to do that. Like, mm-hmm. you know, he you know, if this trial goes the wrong way for him, uh, this is a guy who may have no political future after this, right. which would again would be an oddity in Texas politics. We have never seen a, a Texas attorney general flame out before they even get a shot at running for governor or the US Senate or something else. And Ken Paxton, you know, like him or not. 
You know, it's like he was positioned to take that next step just because he of the office he was in. But now yeah. all that next week, when when this whole trial is going on, all that is in jeopardy. You know, by because of this trial. Yeah, and because of the legal proceedings against him in San Antonio and Houston as well, it's been described as sort of the walls closing in on Paxton in a lot of ways. And I think that the uh, the urgency for those senior Republicans, you know, people always talk about uh, it being the grassroots versus the establishment. But I think another way to think about that is those senior Republicans, uh, those were the elder statesmen of the Republican Party in Texas. And that would be people like Cornyn, Perry. Rove, I think the urgency for them is what you just said, that this is a person who's in line to be the governor of Texas or to be the next U.S. senator from Texas. Uh, and they're concerned about all these allegations of corruption with this guy. And I think, you know, if you're, if you're talking raw politics on it and you have heard from some Democrats who say, you know what, keep him in office because if he runs for something higher, he's one of the only ones we could take out because yeah. of all of the allegations against him. I would reiterate this. Democrats should probably try that with someone else first. See, see if they can be successful beating some other Republican first uh, before they make Paxton the test case on that. Um, but for those Republicans who are concerned about the brand of their party going forward, uh, because this guy is in his ascendancy, this is what you're describing, Jeremy, that they don't want that to flame out because of all these allegations. Now, on the other side, you have former Representative Jonathan Stickland. He was on The War Room with Steve Bannon. It's a show I've been checking out more lately, The War Room with Bannon. Um, because I like getting my lessons on how Texas politics work from, from Steve Bannon. Yeah. Uh, Stickland says that you know this group that he runs day-to-day -day for those West Texas billionaires, the Wilkes brothers and Tim Dunn and that crew who you know, have spent millions and millions of dollars not only propping up Paxton but also attacking uh, other Republicans, other people in their own party. Uh, Stickland said that, look, they've got six Republican members of the Senate who they are targeting. And listen to, and you and I have talked about this a lot, Jeremy, Listen to the defense of Paxton. It's never any defense of what he's actually accused of. It's a political argument only. It is. It, listen to this. It is solely about political consequences for senators if they vote, quote, the wrong way, close quote. We're spending millions of dollars. We think this is a huge fight. We already have spent an incredible amount of money. We will not let these politicians overturn the will of the voters who said we want Ken Paxton. They knew all the information that has been brought out on this, and anyone that votes against Ken Paxton in this impeachment is risking their entire political career. The people he's talking about are not liberals by any stretch of the imagination. The people he's talking about, Jeremy, are not Republican senators who have been uh, any, even anything you could describe as moderate, I don't think, for most of these people. He's talking about people like Drew Springer, Mays Middleton, Kelly Hancock, Charles Schwertner, when I say these names to you, Jeremy, does liberal squish come to mind? Let me put it this way. Let me put it this way. You have all of these Republicans, uh, some activists, and this includes the Republican Party of Texas chairman, Matt Rinaldi, and people like Jonathan Stickland, who you just heard from, and the people at uh, Texas Scorecard, which is really just the old Empower Texas crew. They just sort of rebranded that whole thing. You hear those people saying that this, and this was uh, an email from Chairman Rinaldi, in the last 24 hours, he said that we just had the most conservative results in the Texas legislature ever. And when he was, you know, kind of questioned about that from some Republicans who said, wait a minute, I thought you and others, including that whole crew I just mentioned, all of you folks have been saying that the Texas House is secretly run by Democrats. Well, Rinaldi's response to that is to say, well, you have to give all props to Dan Patrick in the Texas Senate for being so conservative. So, Jeremy, he would be talking about all those senators I just named that Stickland says, you know, might not be rock rib conservative enough when it comes to this Paxton vote. These folks are trying to have it, you know, it, it's, they're trying to have it both ways. They're trying to have it always. Yeah. If I had some old timey music from 1917, I would have made sure we included it. I don't know. Would that be Al Jolson or something? I don't know. But Stickland may well have just taken a time machine back to 1917 and made the exact same argument that they made for James Ferguson, you know, otherwise known as Pa Ferguson back in the time. He's the only other statewide elected official ever impeached. And right before that impeachment, that's exactly the same argument him and his supporters were making that, wait, the voters just elected this guy and you're trying to overturn the will of the people. Uh, it was a completely political argument. Look how that got 
you know, again, Ferguson ended up being impeached, resigned from, you know, the Senate or, or resigned from the governor's office, you know, and then tried to run again later on. But it's yeah. like it's amazing how many similarities that we're seeing with that 1917 impeachment. Uh, I don't people don't even know, but it's, just, you know, like some of the history that they're repeating, <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. Stickland may as well be, you know, Stickland from 1917 in a black <laughs> and white photo, you know, making yeah. his case about Pa Ferguson. Anytime you hear them talk about Paxson, just put Ferguson in there, and it's like it's pretty much the same thing. <laughs> well, it's the only other example we have of a statewide office holder being impeached in this state. I keep coming back to this question about what does it really mean to be an impeachment expert in Texas? We don't really have them, right? Because this doesn't happen very much. You can become expert on something if it happens over and over again, and you you know you observe that thing and you get to ask questions about that thing, whatever it is. Um, I do think that there is a chance because I get I get asked this question everywhere, and I know you do too. There's a chance that he could be convicted. I think that people who think that the Senate is just naturally in the tank for Paxton, I think that they're uh, off base with that. I I think that you have enough Republicans in the Senate who are questioning these allegations against Paxton, uh, questioning them and taking a really close look at everything. Uh, There are those who want to hear all the evidence, you know, as it's presented in the trial. Uh, What I mean by it is they're questioning both sides in this and they're taking their job seriously. I'm sure there are some of them who are just a no uh, for impeachment and removal based on political arguments. Um, But here's something I would add for just for context as somebody who has watched the Senate a lot. And that's what we have to that's what we have to settle for, right? Since there are no real impeachment experts in Texas, you have to settle for a Texas Senate expert. So you and I watch the Senate a lot, so they'll have to settle for us. You know that when the Senate takes on any action, if it's not a purely partisan action, which this isn't, right? This this is not. I think some of those folks in the far right want to make it as if this is some kind of a partisan thing where you have a Democrat-led effort to get rid of Ken Paxton. But I would remind everybody that 70% of Texas House Republicans voted for the impeachment, a truly bipartisan vote, which means it could also truly be a you know bipartisan vote in the Texas Senate. You know that the Senate kind of operates like a club, right? They club up. They, you know when they, when they start talking in private, when they have their private deliberations about this, because dear listener, here's how it's going to work. They're going to present this evidence out in public on the floor, and then the Senate goes in the back room, just like a jury would go in the back room and have their conversation about what to do. In the Texas Senate, you know whether it's a trial or not, the real conversations happen in that back room. And if it starts to, and a veteran of the process made this point to me just the other day, Jeremy, if they're having their conversations and it becomes apparent to all the senators in the room that it's breaking in favor of, of removal, then that number will start to grow. Because if let's say they're at 20, they, let's say they are at 21 votes to remove, you could see it be big. It could be 24 or 25 votes to remove simply because those other senators who maybe had been on the fence, they want to be with the bigger group. And that happens all the time. When uh, when David Dewhurst was the lieutenant governor, his goal was always to try to have almost all the big votes be 31 to nothing, right? That they do things as a unit. And in this case, it's hard to tell where they're going to go because Dan Patrick has essentially become the spiritual leader of the Senate. They kind of do whatever he wants, you know, in general on just about everything, especially the Republicans. But I think Patrick's still not 100% convinced or has figured out where he wants us to go either. Yeah, and it's interesting to remember that, like, you know, you know, the Paxton's had some clashes with the Texas Senate in, you know, in recent history. It was just a couple years ago that they were chastising him for abusing his privileges with the state budget. Uh, he had been moving money around without their approval, you know, from one section to another. And he got called on the carpet for it in a very public way. And you don't see that often, right? You know, most of these guys says, hey, hey, you know, like they do it in a back corner and they don't want it to be public. But they made sure that was a public you know, flogging in this case, you know, to let people know that they were upset with how that ran. They eventually relented and gave him his money. Uh, But the other important thing to remember, like, you know, the one lesson I have learned in covering politics, not just in Texas, but also in Florida and New York, as you know, in politics, you know, Paxton may have a lot of friends and allies he's worked with on the campaign trail or on some legislation in the past. But, you know, in politics, those friendships go away in a heartbeat. (laughs) It's like, like, there was an old uh, state senator 
senator in Florida named John McKay who said, man, if I wanted a friend, I would have brought a dog up here. I was like, I know every single one of them will stick me in the back if they have a chance to down the road. <laughs> it's like, and and I think the same thing kind of holds true. It's like Paxson has allies in the Texas Senate he's worked with and been pals with and, mm-hmm. you know, all kinds of stuff. But, you know, when this, when, when it becomes them or him, yep. it becomes an entirely different conversation. You know, mm-hmm. they're like, and so I, I think, I, you know, I'm kind of interested to see how this kind of works out. I'm, I'm going to take the system at its word that these guys are going to go in there and try to be non-political. Mm-hmm. Uh, and like you mentioned, you know, the Senate works in a different way. They often work together on stuff like Republicans will try to figure out ways to get all the Democrats to join with them on things. Sure. Yeah. Uh, you know, just cause it brings a sense of unity and like, you know, team Senate, we're in this together, you know, mm-hmm. you know, it's our plan versus the House's plan and not so much the Republican plan or the Democratic plan. So, like, all that kind of comes into play. So it will be kind of intriguing to kind of see, like, you know, how this negotiations behind the scenes is happening once they do get into the jury room to start kind of breaking this thing out. Yeah, we will have complete coverage for you. QuorumReport.com, HoustonChronicle.com, ExpressNews.com. Follow our social media feeds as this all gets started on Tuesday, and like I said, it could last as long as a month, although I'm hoping that it doesn't take quite that long. It would be nice if they just came in and did for you. Maybe maybe did two weeks, and then we can kind of all take a break at the Capitol and then come right back for a special session on school choice, which, of course, we'll cover here as well. Um, this whole deal with Abbott sending busloads of migrants around the country to quote-unquote sanctuary cities, it's kind of gone to another level. Let's first think back to a year ago Remember when Abbott started doing this whole thing, Jeremy? It was it, it it was called a stunt by a lot of people. I would say I would say that it still is. It's just gone on for a year. <laughs> um, this this is now a situation where he's sending migrants not only to Washington D.C., which is where the first buses went. Um, he said, and now it's going to all all these other cities as well: L.A., Chicago, whatever. Um, and at that time, a year ago, Abbott said, "We've got small towns on the border, which are simply." overwhelmed by hordes of illegal immigrants who are being dropped off by the Biden administration. Texas is providing charter buses to send these illegal immigrants who have been dropped off by the Biden administration to Washington, D.C. We are sending them to the United States Capitol where the Biden administration will be able to more immediately address the needs of the people that they are allowing to come across our border. Well, it's a nice soundbite. It's gone on for a year, as I mentioned. Um, there was a conversation, was this yesterday, at the Los Angeles City Council, uh, where they have uh, they've really gotten tired of this, right? Yeah, on Wednesday, Wednesday. Uh, they got involved in this thing. You know, you got to remember, like, Los Angeles is one of the more recent cities that have to start getting buses in the summer. Mm-hmm. I think it was in uh, June that Abbott first started sending buses. But the thing that really kind of triggered folks out there is that one of those buses uh, was sent during you know, Hurricane Hillary as it was hitting Southern California. And that has really ticked off a lot of you know people on the city council in Los Angeles, and we've heard from the mayor as well, who have complained about the buses being sent during that storm. Right. So here's council member Hugo Soto Martinez. He was laying out his motion. These motions are about investigating whether Governor Greg Abbott committed kidnapping, human trafficking, or any other crimes when he sent vulnerable families on a 23-hour bus ride with little or no food or water. The competition between these Republican governors about who could be more racist, I think is just an utter failure and shows clearly that they do not have any intention to govern effectively. A couple of weeks ago, when we were all preparing for Hurricane Hillary, he sent, uh, uh, knowingly sent a, a bus with small children right into the path of the hurricane. Now, my own family came from Mexico in search for a better life and improvements. I can't even imagine that instead of being welcomed into this country, we were sent into, the, into a hurricane. Here's Councilman Kevin DeLeon backing him up. He's just going to continue to do it because he has no insight at all whatsoever until there is legal teeth put to this. And that means an injunction by a U.S. federal judge to stop the trafficking of these individuals to another subnational government. For one subnational, 
to another subnational government. The last time I checked, subnational governments have no jurisdiction at all whatsoever when it comes to enforcement of federal immigration laws. So therefore, I just want to uh, say, uh, let's all come together. Thank you very much for moving this. We should have done this a long time ago, but we're moving it nonetheless today. Interesting that they're moving pretty quickly here, Jeremy, since you mentioned that this is one of the most recent cities to start getting the buses, where some of these other cities haven't done anything so far. Um, and you know, these folks are saying they can get out of here with this, that, uh, that this needs to stop. Yeah, it was just a few months ago, you remember that Eric Adams, the mayor of New York City, had been complaining about this, you know, in the media. He went on CNN and he said a lot of kind of the same stuff we were hearing in this city council meeting in Los Angeles. Uh, but, you know, they've mostly just said, hey, they're frustrated with it and then tried to move the the migrants to other parts in New York, uh, in New York at that point where the yep. mayor has got a backlash for basically doing the same thing Abbott did. Right. Abbott sends bus loads to New York City, you know, then, you know, the mayor sends, you know, bus loads, you know, further upstate and everybody gets mad. Uh, but so, yeah, you know, Los Angeles is, you know, clearly like, you know, and again, I'm not sure if they would have done this if not for that hurricane bus. Uh, yeah. It's like, you know, I got the sense that from listening to that hearing uh, that that was a big, you know, problem with the whole thing. So that's kind of been the impetus. And now to be clear, like they don't know, in fact, if they will have a lawsuit. Uh, they've just, you know, told their uh, attorney to look into like if they can sue Abbott, um, mm. you know. So, so it, but stay tuned to this. I'll keep an eye on it. Obviously, you know, through the yeah. process, you know, it's like a, <laughs> I have sources in Los Angeles too that tip me off to uh, events as well. <laughs> so I'll keep an eye on it. Lieutenant Governor Dan Patrick was not impressed with what folks are saying in Washington or New York or Los Angeles. Uh, Patrick was on Fox News Channel and said that he laughs at the city leaders in New York. And LA. These two mayors talk about uh, their issues and their problems. What do they think we deal with in Texas every day since inauguration of Joe Biden? Every day, no matter what happens, thousands and thousands cross our border. And if it weren't for the four billion we just put in our new budget, four billion, Steve, that's bigger than some states entire budget to protect our own border, which, by the way, if you stretched it out, 1,200 miles would go from Atlanta to Maine. Right. That's how much we have to protect because this president is not. We deal with it every day. Cry me a river, the mayor of New York and L.A. I thought you were sanctuary cities. I thought you yeah. wanted them. Guess not. <laughs> He's complaining about what we deal with in Texas. He does know that California is situated on the border, right? That, that It's not as if they don't have undocumented people coming into California. That's number one. Um, number two, he said that we have $4 billion that we spend in our budget for border security. I would say to get what? It's people like Patrick and Abbott and the rest who say that we still have record numbers of crossings and that, you know, that the border is completely out of control. And it's not just $4 billion. Over the last 24 months, it's been $6 billion worth of Texas tax dollars that go toward, quote unquote, border security operations that maybe don't amount to stemming the flow of migration, but have led to a lot of accusations of uh, you know, human rights abuses, et cetera. Uh, the floating border, uh, you know, wall, the buoy wall that you've talked about, Jeremy, that's been called what a monument to cruelty uh, by some folks. And of course, the lawsuit on that uh, is still playing out in court, right? Yeah, any day now or any minute, you know, while we're on this show, we could even have a ruling, at least on the first part of this, which is like, we're waiting on the judge uh, in Austin who's heard the case, that's a federal judge, to determine if there should be an emergency injunction put into place that would force those that buoy barrier out of the Rio Grande you know, near Eagle Pass. So, mm -hmm. uh, you know, if they pull that out, it'll probably, t you know, they'd have a window of about 10 days to pull that thing out but uh so that case is still ongoing you know of course knowing our luck that will drop sometime next week in the middle of the ken paxton trial so uh be prepared for a double dose of law and order <laughs> yeah and all these lawsuits playing out all across the state i mentioned some of these um earlier in the show but let me go through them it was kind of uh, interesting jen rice one of the reporters at the chronicle had put them together put all these lawsuits together a bunch of them in one tweet pointing out that you have all of these different challenges to different laws that were passed by the legislature earlier this year. And those include this development from this week. A federal judge in Houston issued a temporary restraining order against Senate Bill 12. That's the uh, bill that bans drag shows in Texas. Uh, a temporary restraining order from federal judge David Hittner blocks the new law 
uh, and blocks local prosecutors and the AG from enforcing it. So it's kind of interesting uh, that uh, Judge Hittner's um, uh, TRO, the restraining order, it listed four counties where the drag show ban cannot be enforced. And they were, listen to, you tell me if this doesn't sound random. Montgomery County, Travis County, Bear County, and Taylor County. <laughs> what? <laughs> what is that about? So, so, and, and then it also enjoins the AG from from uh, enforcing it as well. Of course, who knows what's going to happen further up the food chain in the federal court system? You know, we, we do have federal courts that are now, uh, you know, just chock full of rock rib conservatives after the Trump administration and after the U.S. Senate blockade on uh, judicial nominees during the Obama administration that Republicans did basically pack the court, stack the courts, right? I mean, they would always say you shouldn't pack the court. I think Republicans packed the court. Democrats, what they've been talking about is changing the number of justices on on the Supreme Court. And changing the number of justices ends up being called packing the court. But what actually did happen was they were packed with the number that they already had. So here's another one of the um, lawsuits that's playing out. A Travis County judge just struck down Texas new law that has to do with city and county regulations. This mainly has to do with city regulations, siding with the city of Houston and other cities that challenged the law. This was the bill that was pushed by Dustin Burroughs from Lubbock, who is a personal injury trial lawyer. And usually trial lawyers look out for the little guy, but his law cracks down on things like mandatory water breaks for construction workers. So I'm not sure how that's looking out for the little guy. Um, His law is so sweeping that no one... Still, nobody can tell me exactly what all ordinances locally it would affect, which is a wild way for uh, legislation to be done. In fact, in the hearing on this in the Texas House, when the bill was making its way through the legislative process, Chairman Burroughs said that he intended for it to sort of be a living document, that just about any time somebody has a problem with a local regulation, they should be able to run down to the courthouse and sue over it. Now, I saw a bizarre response from Chair Burroughs when this law was blocked, he said that the the ruling or the order from this judge in Travis County has no legal effect. It enjoins the law. I mean, they're going to have to go through more litigation about this. And, of course, he admits that in his tweet where he had said that there's no legal effect or precedent from it. He said that eventually he thought that the Texas Supreme Court will side with him and let the law go into effect. So how can you say that the Supreme Court's going to reverse the lower court and that'll make everything okay, but in the meantime, the current ruling has no effect? It's a bizarre statement. Um, so here's another one. A, another judge temporarily blocked the law banning transgender care for minors. Uh, it looks like the Texas Supreme Court has already uh, allowed that to go into effect. So these battles are happening all over the place. And one more, this specific to Houston, a judge temporarily blocked the law abolishing the Harris County Elections Office. An appeal is expected on that. In at least two of those cases, Jeremy, it's uh, local governments fighting with the state government, where you have the way that Harris County uh, elections have been done, and then this bill cracking down on local regulations in a in a broad sense. And remember, we live in a state where the governor, Greg Abbott, has said that cities and counties should basically have no authority to create any regulations and that everything should be done at the state level. I There have always, let me say this, there have always been legal battles after the Texas legislature passes laws. I mean, of course, there are always groups that didn't, you know, didn't win at the legislative level, so they're going to challenge it in court. There seems to be a lot more urgency, and maybe I'm wrong, but there seems to be a lot more urgency after this last legislative session. These these legal challenges happening very quickly to try to get certain things blocked before they can take effect, um, and happening on so many different issues that cover you know covering what's going on in the courts. It's it's almost as if you're still covering a legislative session. It's just happening in the courts now because we're trying to figure out which which of these things are going to actually become Texas law. 
Yeah, it almost feels like the Texas legislature is intentionally trying to make sure lawyers everywhere keep getting paid. <laughs> it's like the one thing that's you know come out of this legislative session is like a whole heck of a lot of lawyer fees on so many levels on so many different issues. So yeah, like it, it's amazing though if you kind of go back to even what Burrow said uh, and even what I've heard kind of about the the Bowie lawsuit, which is like sure there's a ruling initially that'll come out against us, but we'll take it to the next level and will win at the state Supreme Court or the federal Supreme mm-hmm. Court because they're on our side. You know, right. it's like, so, so the legal system is like, it's, I, I just don't remember it being like this, you know, maybe, you know, uh, I'm being curmudgeon about this thing, but it now it's being just as like, partisan. Yeah, yeah. So now it's just like, okay, your team won this round. Our team stacks the deck on the next round, and we'll take it out over there. So it's like it's just this this seesaw back and forth of legal judges, uh, legal decisions, and oh, but wait for the appeal. Almost every single one of these stories, when the rulings come down, you see a line in the story about how it's almost certainly going to be appealed. Yeah, there's been a version of that, right? To to your point, maybe it seems more partisan, or it seems more. Um, just a just a given that the the court that's up the food chain is going to reverse the lower court because of the partisan makeup of the court at the at the top of the system. Um, but here's what's different. And I, Jeremy, I warned about this on a previous show. Remember, we were talking about the buoys, and I said, "What if Governor Abbott just says no when a court says he has to take those buoys out of the water?" What if that happens? He would just be, you know, just completely ignoring a lawful order from a federal court. Listen to this part of Burroughs' response. I've got his tweet in front of me here. He had said that the judgment by a Democrat Travis County district judge is not worth the paper it's printed on. The Texas Supreme Court will ultimately rule this law to be completely valid, the part you were just talking about. But then here's the part that goes with what I said about what Abbott might eventually do. Burroughs said, quote, the ruling today has no legal effect or precedent, and should deter no Texan from availing themselves of their rights when this law becomes in effect on September 1st, 2023. In other words, he's saying that even though the law is blocked for now, that if people have a problem with a local ordinance, they should just go to court now anyway, that that they should challenge that under his law, which is is blocked for now. In other words, if if his law had to do with buoys in the water, he would just be telling people to not take the buoys out of the water. That's what's different. You know, you, you, now have, you now have some Republicans willing to say that because they disagree with a certain court ruling that people should just disregard that it did anything. You know, I had gotten to probably in the last couple of years, gotten maybe like you said, curmudgeonly or jaded about the way all these legal challenges play out. And it, it got to the point where I would think, well, if a lower court does one thing, maybe I don't necessarily need to make a big deal about it because I, know, I also know, because I've seen it happen too many times, that it's going to be reversed. By the by, the, the the appeals court or the Supreme Court is just going to change it, and so it doesn't really matter that much. But now we're getting to the point because maybe some of us have been so jaded about it. Now we're getting to the point where some people say, "Well, that court made a ruling, so you don't even have to act like that ruling happened. Just go yeah. on and do whatever you were going to do anyway." And that to me is a little disturbing. Yeah, maybe that, it's a that, lot disturbing. Well, and and, it, and, and you kind of hit on it earlier with, you know, when you mentioned the Trump situation. You know, it's like so, like you know, even those Republicans who didn't necessarily want to vote for Donald Trump, uh, maybe they had another candidate they preferred, or maybe they thought, you know, you know, he had too much baggage in the first round. You know, back in twenty sixteen. Oh, you know, the one thing that Republicans did really well is they rallied around it and said, you know, forget about the man who's running and remember what he can do, which is focus on the Supreme Court. Uh, and it's like, and so, and the Republicans do a very good job of that, certainly compared to Democrats, where they're like, okay, it doesn't matter if you like the guy running or not, we have to worry about the Supreme Court. And we could overturn Roe versus Wade if we get the right person. You know, we could, you know, get rid of these campaign finance laws if we get the right person. So there's all kinds of things that like, that go into play on this. And like the Republicans have just done a good job of saying, okay, I may have a problem with you know Donald Trump, but I want him to appoint uh, you know a, a Kavanaugh to the court, and that will determine my decision at the box. Democrats don't think that way. They're just in there going, "Oh, I don't like Hillary Clinton so much, so uh, I'll just let that one slide." Not ever once in their mind thinking, "Oh, that could lead to Roe versus Wade being overturned." Right. It's like, but Republicans are thinking that way. 
And they're telling yes. that people do that. Even like I, I remember being in Brownwood, Texas with Ted Cruz as he was talking to a crowd about Donald Trump. And he said, I disagree with Donald Trump on a lot of things, but right. you can't argue with his Supreme Court justice picks. They've been right on the mark. You know, mm-hmm. again, they're focused on the prize, and the prize is what we're about to see. You know, with the judiciary, you know, in the Supreme Court of mm-hmm. of the United States, and you know, in the Fifth, you know, Circuit that will hear appeals on a lot of these other federal cases. The Bowie lawsuit, if it, you know, if it gets appealed, it'll go to that Fifth Circuit, which has been become like basically a Republican. You know, proving ground. You know, where every yeah. Republican, you know, issue that whatever it is gets supported. You know, and I think it it speaks to the way in which national Democrats do not listen to Democrats in Southern states as, and in states where where Democrats are in the minority. Because I remember for the last ten, and I'll I'll explain that in the last ten or fifteen years, in speaking to Democrats in Texas about things like abortion rights, um, you know, LGBTQ issues, whatever it is, um, the comment that I would hear all the time from them, Jeremy, is the courts are all we have. When something's moving through the legislature, we can't stop it. We don't have the votes to stop it. We, we don't have the governor's office. We don't have the lieutenant governor's office. We don't have the numbers in the Texas House or Senate to stop a law from making its way through the process. We, you know, we can battle it as much as we can, you know, using the rules in the House and, you know, trying to uh, maybe filibuster in the Senate the, the way they did in 2013. But once that thing is signed by the governor, in the estimation of a lot of those uh, Democrats, they would say that's when the real battle starts and we take it to court, right? And so here you have national Democrats not focused on that at all, not focused at all on the fact that when these laws pass in Texas, like this ban on drag shows or like this ban on um, uh, gender-affirming care or any of the other things that a lot of liberals and Democrats would care about, that once it's passed, they don't have any recourse. It's over with. I mean, think about the way that – take it down uh, you know, to a fundamental – level of voting rights, where the Voting Rights Act is gutted by the Supreme Court, there's no more redistricting lawsuits the way that there used to be. Remember, that would be a 10-year process of going through yep. the courts after, after the redistricting process. Now, they can't. the courthouse doors are closed to them because they can't really challenge uh, you know, these new voting laws based on anything other than racial discrimination. They can't because of the way that um, there's no preclearance anymore. From the DOJ for the way that law that uh, that uh, laws are, are passed or, or or elections changes are made, they dissolved a school board in the largest school district in Texas, and they didn't have to get DOJ preclearance for anything. They used to have to do that. Yeah. Right. The last time that happened in one of our bigger cities in Texas, it was in El Paso. I think it was in 2011 or 12 when they dissolved the school board there, and they were going to put uh, you know a, another board in. Uh, and they had to get the DOJ to look at that, you know, first for preclearance um, because of the issues surrounding representation. One of the most, think of it this way, in one of the most diverse communities in the United States, in Houston, Texas, the DOJ, those career lawyers who would look at the uh, new board as it was made up and say, okay, are all the minority uh, communities within Houston, are they being accurately represented before they can move forward with this plan to do a takeover of a school district? And that protection is not there anymore. So you don't have preclearance anymore. You don't really have the courthouse doors open anymore for challenges on a whole host of these issues. And even if the courthouse doors are open, the judge they're going to find in there was probably appointed by Trump. Yep. Right. Or in, or in Texas, if they were elected, it's probably a Republican, except for some of these uh, lower appellate courts. And so the Democrats have just sort of unilaterally left behind people in these states like Texas Alabama, Mississippi, you see the redistricting lawsuits happening in some of these other places where they're still trying to figure out how to get you know more representation for, of minorities for certain people. But in the last 10 to 15 years, those protections have been so eroded, and in some cases, just not even there anymore. Yeah, and, and, and you know, and taking it back to Trump again, it's like, you know, for some of the Democrats out there who think, oh, if the Republicans, you know, nominate uh, Donald Trump again, uh, Joe Biden will have an easier shot. It's like, no, but you got to go back to, you know, what happened in 2016. Like, even Republicans who may not have liked Donald Trump still rallied around him because of the court. And I'm telling you, if if Trump is the nominee again, uh, 
this is going to be a close race again. This is going to be like a toss up because of this fact of the court. It's like there's a lot of Republican and conservative minded people who are still coming, going to come out in big numbers because of what Trump could do and less on who Trump is. And yep. I think, and, and again, unless the Democrats can kind of tap into it, like I am not putting money down on a Biden reelection, even against Donald Trump. It's like, I just don't know what's going to happen right now because, I, you know, it, no matter who the nominee is, the Republicans are going to be better at getting their people out in name of the judicial system to keep this kind of stuff happening. And the Democrats just are not built that way. It's like for whatever reason. You know, they yeah. can't go to their people and say, hey, Ruth Bader Ginsburg might die. We should really mm-hmm. be worried about this. And they're like, ah, whatever. Look at the no. way. Yeah, right. Look at the way that Republicans are able to organize their folks around those fundamental things where Democrats just aren't. You, 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 have, you have never seen Democrats in Texas or anywhere else make a convincing case either for national money or for voters to show up and, uh, you know, get organized around redistricting or photo ID or anything that has to do with, um, you know, what, what Democrats would call voter suppression. The, you know, there was plenty of that kind of stuff debated in the last two years in Texas with that sweeping elections law in 2021, which we covered ad nauseum here, uh, on the show. And of course, uh, in our respective news publications, um, the, the Democrats flee to Washington to make this big national show about it. And were there people fired up about that? I don't know that they really were. Um, I, I would say this. Republicans, when it comes to changing some of these fundamental things, they'll do anything. And in some ways, I mean this as a compliment. They'll do anything. So when photo ID was passed back in 2011, you know that the rules in the Texas Senate now say, whatever it is, five-ninths of senators have to agree to move forward the, on, the, on a bill. Uh, it's, the rule now is just however many Republicans there are. That's, that's what it takes to move a bill forward. But it used to be that it was two-thirds of the senators had to agree to bring a bill to the floor. And the Republicans for years, I think in 2007 and 2009, had tried to pass the voter ID law, and they just didn't have the 21 votes in the Senate to move it forward. Did you know that in 2011, when the Senate convened in January of that year— they adopted rules that specifically exempted photo ID from the two-thirds rule. That's how they passed it. Um, now, when the Democrats went to Washington from, from Texas to try to make the case that the filibuster should be suspended or there should be some rule change made in the U.S. Senate to try to pass some voting rights legislation, that fell on dead, you know, deaf ears. They, they had, the folks in Washington, I'm sure, have no idea about what I just said which is that the Republicans around here just change the rules. If, if, if they don't get what they want from the rules as they exist, they just change them. Specifically for that, my, my publisher, Harvey Kronberg at Quorum Report, at the time in 2011, he described that as, as some of the most partisan venom he had ever seen, which is to completely change the rules just for one thing. At the national level, Democrats don't fight like that when it comes to these fundamental things. And I don't know if it's because those are not the things that raise money for them, through the Act Blue campaigns and all that sort of stuff. I know that the things that probably bring in more money have to do with, you know, specifically with LGBTQ rights or, or women's health or all those things that are very important. But at a fundamental level, if you want to be able to battle Republicans on those things, then you have to be willing to take them on on those things like the judiciary, like voting rights, etc. And it, if for whatever reason, that message never, ever breaks through. I don't know if it's too many, too many things to think about. You know, it's a, why can't you just elect people who agree with me about things? Why can't y'all put forward better candidates, raise more money, do better organizing? But, you know, it, it's, it's as, as some folks in the Democratic Party, as they said when they got sort of angry with Joe Biden about the idea that you could out-organize voter suppression. You remember that quote? Yeah. <laughs> um, well, it, there, there's something to that. They can't, they can't hold enough protests— they can't raise enough money through Act Blue to change the districts as they're constituted around the state, right? That's something that's done at a fundamental level. And all these things that are done at a fundamental level, I'm sorry, Republicans are just better at that stuff than Democrats. Yeah, they have more of a, uh, we'll say, killer instinct on that piece, right? You know, they, they just have yes. like, you know, they, they are just willing to do like, you know, whatever it takes. You know, you know think about the, uh, the heartbeat bill. 
in the Texas you know, legislature. Uh, the precursor to obviously Roe versus Wade being overturned. Even before that, look at what the Republicans were doing. They kept trying to con- you know configure a bill that could not only pass the legislature, but what would trigger the lawsuit that could get us to the Supreme Court with the right kind of judges. It's like that's what occupied their time. That was a legitimate thought process in them. Like, how do I get this to trigger a lawsuit? And you can almost see it happening with this Bowie lawsuit with Greg Abbott too. You know, while the federal government had sued him over the Rivers and Harbor Act and said he violated that, Abbott keeps trying to make it about immigration because he wants to try to somehow get this topic switched over. It's like, if I can get this about immigration uh, mm-hmm. and the state's rights, you know, and have the Supreme Court revisit whether or not, you know, you know only the federal government can do immigration, right? You know, there's a potential that that could get overturned. They're thinking that way. The Democrats just aren't ready for it. <laughs> you know, in a lot of cases, they're just kind of surprised. That, oh, wait a minute. How did this case, you know, overturn Roe versus Wade so quickly? You know, it just took nothing. You know, right. it was so fast. You know, it's mm-hmm. like, and, and watch, you know, what Abbott is trying to trigger. Again, I'm not sure if he's going to be successful, but you can see the long game here is to get the United States Supreme Court to give the states more authority to do immigration on their own. You know, that is the goal. That is the mission. Uh, and so that, I think, you know, shows you the difference between the, the long-term thinking of the political parties. You know, mm-hmm. it wasn't always this way. There was a point where you can see go in, in history where Democrats and, you know, people kind of rallied around the idea of like, you know, you know, the civil rights movement, you know, mm-hmm. it's like which really produced a lot of electoral victories that did of produce course. change, right? You know, it right. did change the way the courts operated and how they viewed things, you know? If Thurgood Marshall isn't on that Supreme Court, you know, how much different is American history, you know, after that, right? You know, it's like, and so you can see there was a time and place where that did rise to the top of people's decision to make their choice. But now we're in this weird kind of universe where like, you know, I think more Democratic-leaning voters are wondering, uh, oh, is that somebody I can really have a beer with? You know, and like, do I like that person rather than the bare knuckles part of, oh, if I elect this person, can we overturn, you know, constitutional carry? They're not thinking that way. Republicans are like, huh, maybe if we elect this, you know, this Trump guy, we can overturn Roe versus Wade. Mm -hmm. Well, you know, the, the Democrats, once they get a victory on something, they move on to something else. The Republicans don't do that. They start organizing for the day that they'll just take the victory back. It was the same thing on Roe versus Wade. Same thing on, I'm telling you this, it's the same thing on stuff like gay marriage. If you want to think that's over with, it is not. There are yep. a bunch of folks who want that to be overturned, and they'll, they'll do all the work that they can to try to make it happen. To your point about Republicans choosing a person based on what they know they will do rather than who they are and whether they would have a beer with them. Jeremy, you could not have set me up more perfectly for what I'm about to bring up. Did you see that Senator Ted Cruz was swigging some Shiner Bach on, I think, on Newsmax (laughs) uh, this week? He said that if these liberals want to tell me I can only have two beers a day, then, or I'm sorry, two beers a week. If these liberals want to say I can only have two beers a week, they can kiss my ass. That's the direct quote. I want you to hear what he had to say. He's talking to one of the, I'm putting news anchor in quotes, one of the news anchors on on Newsmax. And he had a bunch of people behind him also drinking some Shinerbach. Listen to this. They're trying to go after and regulate ceiling fans. I got to tell you, it's hot in Texas. We don't want to get rid of our ceiling fans. And now these idiots have come out and said, drink two beers a week. That's their guideline. Well, I got to tell you, if they want us to drink two beers a week, frankly, they can kiss my ass. No, okay. Um, Senator, I, uh, I brought a beer to drink with you. I'll drink this non-alcoholic beer with you because I'm not allowed to drink on camera. Freedom. He's, he's drinking non-alcoholic beer and toasting to freedom. I'll just let you think about that for a minute. Here, here's, how, here's how this got started. Um, Cruz is railing about this because 
there was a question asked of the White House press secretary, Corrine Jean-Pierre. She was asked whether the president planned to limit Americans to two beers a week. That question came from Fox News correspondent Peter Ducey. And the question apparently came from, and I'm reading from the Houston Chronicle, the question apparently came from comments made by Dr. George Koob, who is the director of the National Institute on Alcohol Abuse and Alcoholism. And he said during an interview with the Daily Mail last week, that it might be a good idea for people to uh, curb their alcohol use to two drinks a week. Current recommendations advise men to limit themselves to two drinks a day, and women should stick to one. So if if anybody was going to make that a regulation, that would be a pretty quick shift <laughs> to yeah. saying that people should only have two drinks a week. Of course, right now in the United States, there's no limit on how many drinks you can have in a week. <laughs> or a day, <laughs> or a day, or an hour, and I know I know some people who who would push way past that. Um, you know, within thirty minutes, that they might have two drinks, or, four, or you know, that that they would just have drinks nonstop. Now, this is silly, of course, because there is no such regulation. There's no proposal for any regulation like that. Cruz is in campaign mode, right? He wants to give the middle finger to the Biden administration. What this really made me think about is the fact that I feel like if you watch that clip that has gone viral now where Cruz is drinking a Shiner Bach and the guy on Newsmax is drinking some, I don't know, what what non-alcoholic beer that was. Is it O'Doul's that you would – that's the yeah. that's the non-alcoholic it's thing. It's definitely non-alcoholic, but I'm sure there are others. Well, after, after the guy drank from his non-alcoholic beer, then Cruz started to say, completely unprompted, he started to say, and did any beer ever do themselves more of a disservice than Bud Light? So he just started ripping Bud Light once again over the transgender made-up controversy. But I did feel that if you watch that video, dear listener, go find it. It's, on, it's everywhere. It's on YouTube and Twitter and, or X or whatever we're calling Twitter now. Now they call them posts instead of tweets. Um, if you watch it, I think Cruz has, has actually improved in trying to seem like a normal guy you would have a beer with. If you watch the clip, he's getting a little closer to that. Now, he's always been kind of an awkward dude, right? Um, do you remember a few years back, he was asked about Texas queso and why it's good? And his answer was just bizarre. Um, and at, John Cornyn was in the background of this video which you can find on YouTube as well. Just go to uh, go there and, and type in uh, Ted Cruz queso. <laughs> and it's a clip that comes up from a Dallas Morning News reporter who was there for it. What had happened was, uh, I think it was Tom Cotton from Arkansas and Cruz had a little contest uh, amongst the U.S. senators. Uh, they, they were each going to bring um, a snack item to see which one was better, which one the senators would like better. And Cruz was going to bring queso. And Cotton was going to bring cheese dip from Arkansas. <laughs> now, in Arkansas, they have queso as well, but it's not the same, obviously. Well, they have cheese dip at their picnics and stuff, and you eat it on a cracker. So, But what I want you to listen to, you just heard Cruz talk about beer and, you know, that he 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 thinks they can kiss his ass if, if it's only going to be two beers a week. I thought it was a little more forceful, a little more normal when Cruz said, you can kiss my ass, and then he took a drink of the Shiner Bock. And then he went on to talk about Shiner Bock being a great company. But and I want you to hear the question and the answer on this, Jeremy, because I don't want anybody to think that he was sort of hit with a gotcha question or anything, you know, that, that maybe the reporter took him by surprise. Listen to Cruz talking about how good queso is. And you tell me if there's not just something a little off about the way he talks. When He can talk about the Constitution all day and be, you know, eloquent. It can be pretty riveting, actually to listen to Cruz speak about, you know, issues that he really cares about. But if you just ask him about normal stuff like a snack, this is what you get. What makes a uh, Texas queso so great? It just tastes good. It, it speaks to the soul. Good queso relaxes you. Look, if che cheese dip can be served on a Ritz cracker or with one of those tiny Vienna sausages, queso is made to be scooped up with tortilla chips dribbling down your chin and onto your shirt. One is a visceral, emotional, powerful family bond as you and your kids pour into nachos covered in queso. Uh, the other is party favors at, at an afternoon tea. Now, Evan, 
turn your microphone on for a second. So you saw, did you watch that clip? Did you, did you see what was going on there? I did not. Did, did you, did you see the guy with the white hair, like taken off and leaving at the end? No, I didn't there, see there, it. There's, there's, okay. All right. There's a guy, you're no help. Turn your microphone off. There's a guy, <laughs> there's a guy in the background. His name is John Cornyn, Jeremy. And as that answer was playing out in such painful fashion, Corn, the look on Cornyn's face said everything you need to know. And as, as, uh, as Cruz is wrapping up, Cornyn just makes a beeline for the door. Like, get me out of here. <laughs> I, I don't want, don't want to be here for this. This is the most painful, awkward thing ever, but I want to give, and I, I usually, you know, I'm a little more critical of Senator Cruz. I want to give him a little credit here, Jeremy. Now in 2023, as opposed to what you just heard with all that awkwardness of the queso, he's a little more normal when talking about just normal guy stuff, like having a beer. Yeah, and, and and who knew that having queso with my family was a bonding experience? <laughs> it's like, I'm going to drop that on my kids the next time I'm with them and say, we have to go get some queso. We have to bond. As y'all are growing older, I want this moment to remember the time we had queso together. <laughs> the beginning of his answer was fine. He says, it just tastes good. He could have left it at that. And then he says, it speaks to the soul. Good queso speaks to the soul. What are you talking about? It's a bonding it's a bonding experience with your family? It's pretty rough. Somebody told him to, you know, sand the rough edges off of these answers about <laughs> normal things. All right, that's enough show. I'm uh, I'm rested and ready for the trial that's going to start next week. You'll want to follow along with our coverage. Of course, Jeremy will have uh, the latest developments in that and other things, his daily newsletter that you can sign up for for free uh, on his social media. Jeremy S. Wallace on Twitter. He's got it as the pinned tweet there, the link for you to sign up for his newsletter. Uh, thanks to our producer, Evan Scherer, even though he didn't take the time to watch John Cornyn run from that room, but he still got it. He still got the show on lock here. Uh, you should subscribe at quorumreport.com and houstonchronicle.com, and we'll see you next time. Mm-hmm.